Okay, we're, we're just going to start the Q&A session now. Thanks for those who stay, and I know we've, uh, we've got it live streamed as well so others can uh, catch up afterwards. Um, we've got quite a few questions. It's not too late to submit one. Uh, the uh, link is there. Um, and it's, it's really, the questions are really looking at the whole of this sermon series, not just what we had today. So there may be some questions that are more uh, related to things that we've already looked at in Romans 9 to 11. Um, so here's a first question, which is more, I guess, from Romans 9. Uh, and the question is, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a long question. Unfortunately, we haven't got them up, up on the screen. So, uh, and it's this, with regards to God's sovereign choice that we see in Romans 9, how do we reckon with this when sharing and evangelizing, especially with people we love? And the fact that God hardens people's hearts and decides who will receive his mercy, how do we understand this more practically when we are praying for people's salvation? And balance our understanding that prayers can move mountains against God's will uh, that, was, uh, that he predestines uh, and is predecided. Perhaps some may feel either disheartened or relieved by this, especially in light of whether one empathizes like Jacob or Esau, as mentioned in the passage. Um, so I guess, I guess that's kind of about sharing our faith and... And basically, you know, if you're praying for somebody, what if you're praying for somebody that God has destined not to receive salvation? I think that's kind of what is behind this question. Yeah, ex I mean, these, these are all excellent questions. So um, That's one question. That's number one, yeah. No, as in I've, all the questions that have been submitted are, are also excellent. Um, but um, the, I think, I mean, yes, so Romans, we... we what, what I, I think my answer to a lot of these questions will be, let's not be more biblical than the Bible. So look at everything the Bible says, and even just look at what Paul says. So Romans 9, Paul says, God has chosen some and not others. But what does he say immediately in Romans 10, ch chapter 10, verse 1? Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. And so... We tend to hear these things, and we, we want to say it must in the end be one or the other. That's what, we, that's what we say. We always say either God chooses everyone, and therefore there's no point doing absolutely anything, you know, nothing we do makes a difference, or we say, no, God doesn't choose everyone, and it's all down to us, and therefore what, everything we do does make a huge difference, and we need to get on and pray and evangelize and all those kinds of things because it's, up to, it's not up to God. And if it is up to God, you know, so it's a sort of you know, zero-sum game. It's either God or us, but it can't be both. The Bible says, no, it is both. It is both. And, so, and, and we go, well, how does that work? God is God and we are not is, seems to be the way that even these chapters answer it. So we go, well, that doesn't make sense to me. He's the potter, we're the clay is exactly how Paul, where Paul goes with that. So we are not the potter. He's the potter. He gets to say how things work. Now, Yes, that does create questions, but sometimes that's okay when you're dealing with the God of the universe and us human beings. That's, so so that, that's the kind of starting point. And then to go, okay, what does the Bible do? What do the writers of the Bible do with these truths? Even as Paul proclaims really clearly, 
God has chosen who he's going to choose, does he then go, okay, guys, go home, don't, don't pray, don't talk to your friends about Jesus? No, he's, I mean, Romans 10, he says the very opposite. He says, I am praying for people to be saved, and, I, um, and then how can, they hear, how can they call on the one in whom they have not heard? You need to tell them about Jesus. Um, and if, you, if you're thinking, you know, is it only Paul? Is, it, is this a sort of minority report? We, we looked a couple of weeks ago at John chapter 6, where we see Jesus doing exactly the same thing. He, and he says, all that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. So, so the promise is always there, and we can say in evangelism, and therefore, um, yeah, we, we can always say, come to Jesus, and you will have eternal life. And that goes with what I was saying in the sermon, that we don't know whom God has chosen. We should not presume to know whom God has chosen, but it is good to know that God is in charge and not us. And that, that is the, these are the things that we are trying to hold together, in, or that the Bible is trying to hold together or, and, and is proclaiming to us, and we're trying to make sense of in reading it. God's in charge, but don't presume that you can tell whom he has chosen. We do not know. We go on external evidence, um, but we need to know he's in charge, and therefore we can trust him, because what kind of God is not in charge? But, therefore, the, the Bible never says, therefore, stop praying, stop doing it. I mean, the, the, other, the, the, the other thing to say about prayer is that prayer is actually the means that God loves to use to bring about his plans. So, again, we think it must be either or. Either I pray about things that God wouldn't have thought of unless I'd raised them. And then he goes, oh, all right, then, you know, I'll do it. No, God knows what we're going to pray before we ask him. And so we go, oh, well, there's no point in praying then, is there? Because he already knows. No, he tells us he wants us to pray. So, and, and actually, us, it turns out the way God unfolds his plans is that he actually uses the prayers of his people as part of the way that he does it. And so that we, we pray for our friend to come to know Jesus, and then they come, they come to know Jesus. Well, did God already know that was going to happen? Yes, he did know that was already going to happen. But the way it happened was because I prayed for my friend, and then my friend um, became a Christian. And we said, well, I don't know, I, this, this all feels very strange. Well, he's God. He's God. And he's doing it so that we marvel at his mercy, which is where we get to at the end of chapter 11. Yeah, and actually, just think about it. This specific question is really just a subset of the more general question about prayer and God's sovereignty. You know, you can say that about anything. Well, what if I'm praying for something that, you know, and God's will is different? Well, actually, God's big enough to take care of that and still use our prayers anyway. So we don't, we, you know, I, I think knowledge of God's sovereignty never in Scripture stops somebody praying, or, or rather... A lack of knowledge about what God is going to do never stops kind of people, or do specifically, never stops people from praying in Scripture, never functions to stop people praying, does it? Um, we've got a, a, a related question, but, but more kind of from a pastoral point of view, really. How would you answer the anxious person who fears that God has not chosen them, either a Christian lacking assurance or a non-Christian who is aware of this doctrine? Yeah, so um, I think, I think we, we touched on this in the sermon, I think, but it, just today. But if um, the point, again, is 
that, that is presumptuous. So I would say it in a kind way, but we do not know. So to sort of conclude, oh, no, God has not chosen me. No, we do not know. He, he does his plan in ways that we're not expecting and don't understand. And so somebody who looks like God has not chosen them could still come to faith at the end of their life. And that might be the way that God's going to do it. And so actually it is, it is in the end presumptuous of us to conclude things about God's plan that he has not made known to us. We don't know. And he, what does he tell us to do? He tells us to hold out the gospel to everybody. For us, so what about for ourselves? I mean, that's, the, again, a really important question. What about if I, I fear for myself, have I been saved? We need to go back to the promises that the Bible makes. And even in these chapters, so we might have heard a strong message of God's sovereignty in chapter 9. Chapter 10... Um, as he continues with his argument, um, he, Jesus, Paul says this, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So the question to any of us is not am I chosen, the question is do I believe Jesus is Lord and that God raised him from the dead? If the answer is yes, you can know that you are saved. You don't need to kind of go beyond that to, but what if I'm not chosen? The sign that you are chosen is that you are trusting in him. So trust in him today and make preparation to keep trusting in him tomorrow. Of course, we do all know people who it looks like had a period in their life where they were trusting and then they turned their back and walked away. And that is hard to understand and get our heads around Number one, it's not the end of the story, exactly what we were saying in the, in the sermon. So, you know, it's not over till it's over. Number two, though, um, you know, in the end, the way the Bible seems to put that together is that people can look like for a period that they are trusting, but they cease, to, um, you know, it turns out they, they weren't actually doing so. We, again, we can't see into people's hearts. We don't know what's going on. But if we're asking for ourselves, the question is, are you trusting in Jesus? The bar is low for faith in Jesus. It's not a high bar. That's the whole point of salvation by grace alone. It's a low bar. So we might think, I'm a, but I'm such a dreadful sinner. That's the point. <laughs> that's the point, isn't it? You know, I, I mess up. No, that's, that's who Jesus died for. He died, he died for sinners. So if, you, so if it's your sin that's making you aware of Jesus... Sorry, if it's a sin that's making you aware of how how little you deserve to be part of his people, that's right. That's exactly right. Why do we think that we've got to now prove that we're good enough by what we do? So keep coming back to Jesus and keep putting faith in him and, um, and make preparation to do that tomorrow. Thank you. Um, there's another question here that um, is, is related, I think. Uh, I'm not entirely sure quite what's behind the question, but um, should we be wary of proclaiming a doctrine of free will in the matter of salvation? And I don't know whether that relates to the idea of kind of making faith a work, possibly. Or whether it's just... Yeah, I, I think what I say on that is... We, we do get very flustered about this question of whether we have free will. And as I mentioned in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, actually that's a thing that Christ, philosophers, whether or not they're Christian, have trouble figuring out what free will actually is. I don't think it's that helpful to get all the way into that, but it, it's, not a, it's not as simple as, 
either I'm in charge or God is in charge. Um, and that, that is one thing to say. Um, should, in, terms of, in the context of salvation, though, I mean, I think we just do what the Bible does, and we just do what Jesus does. We don't need to be more complicated than that. So Jesus is happy to say, God is going to give me whoever he wants to give me, but I, I'm going to issue a general invitation to anybody who puts their trust in him. So in normal everyday evangelism, I'm not going to say to people, um, uh, you know, put your trust in Jesus, but only if God's chosen you, you know. I mean, in one sense, that is true. That's what the Bible says. And if they hear that invitation, they will respond anyway. You know, so it's not as if that's... But I, just, I don't think that's generally how the Bible models holding out the gospel to people. Um, so, we, you know, we hold out the gospel as put your trust in Jesus and you will be saved. Dig a bit deeper and you find, actually, God's in charge of, of who does that. Um, but it's just... You know, because God is bigger than us and our, our brains are small generally stick with the patterns that we've been given in, in Scripture for these kinds of things and um, don't overthink beyond what we have in front of us. You know, the reason we've talked about these big questions over the last couple of weeks is because they're here in Romans 9 to 11. But both sides of the thing are, are there in 9 to 11, the sovereignty of God and the need for anybody who puts their trust in Jesus to do so. Brilliant. Thank you. I'm going to paraphrase uh, a little bit of this uh, next question. Um, it starts, what room is there for the Holy Spirit to move rather than our conversation in evangelism? So like the example of uh, where I think it's in 1 Peter, where uh, a woman whose uh, uh, unbelieving husband is won over by her good contact without a word. Uh, and is this particularly relevant in a hostile environment where Jews can kind of be persecuted for coming to faith in Jesus. Um, so it, the question ends, um, is there any way we can love the Jews by just humbling ourselves and being quiet? Yes, yeah, so, uh, yes, and I think the question, when I saw the question, I think it talks about the, the responses there have been to Jews for Jesus. You know, so Jews for Jesus is a, Jew, a movement of Jewish believers in Jesus who have been well-known and are now well-known in the Jewish community as people to avoid. So people don't know about Jesus, but they do know, don't go near Jews for Jesus, or a lot of Jewish people do. And that is a bit of a branding problem for Jews for Jesus. So when you talk to, we've met Ziggy, North London, um, Jews for Jesus missionary. It's one of the things they've been grappling with is how they as an organization deal with that. Um, I mean, I, th I think... I think the thing is, the Bible, you know, I think the Bible says both. It says you do need to put your trust in Jesus, and if you haven't heard of Jesus, you can't put your trust in him. Mm. So, but it also puts, there's a lot of emphasis on how we live backing up what we say, and sometimes what Christians have been guilty of is what we say not being matched by how we live. And so, you know, we will be able to think of crass attempts to um, you know, convert Jewish people or, or convert anybody really. You know, we, we, we do know there are sort of bad ways of doing it that don't seem to work very well. Um, you know, you, is it right to go stand in the middle of Golders Green or Stamford Hill and sort of shout about Jesus in the street? You know, probably not. You know, that's probably not a very loving, helpful... You know, you, are you going to be heard if you do that? Are they actually going to hear who... 
Jesus is if you do that. You know, there are some things that are not going to be particularly helpful, um, but they, we need to find ways to win an audience such that people want to hear about Jesus. Now, the question was also asked about the Holy Spirit. Absolutely the Holy Spirit. He is, you know, if anybody comes to Jesus, it's because the Holy Spirit has enabled them. But again, it's, it's not either or. It is both and. And so it, this, would be, this would apply to all our evangelism. If we just say, I'm just going to live differently um, and I'm not going to say anything, um, you know, it's the classic story of the man who said he was going to do that, and on his day he retired from his job, someone came to him and said, I know there's something different about you, and I've, I've been watching you for years. I can see you're really different. Have you become a vegetarian? You know, there's that sort of, you know, people, how will they know? And they, they've got to know. If they do it in the context of knowing that you're a Christian and you have mentioned Jesus once, or, you know, you, you've talked about Jesus, you've talked about him, then they will watch your life and see whether... It matches up, and that's the, that, you know, that is the key bit. It is very important. But at some point, somehow, people need to hear about Jesus. They need to be ready to hear about him. And the, the book that really is really helpful, and this actually written by a Jewish believer in Jesus, is Questioning Evangelism that we had as a, a the men's group, had a, as a book of a term, but it's, it's a book for men and women. Really helpful on not, first of all, telling people stuff, but asking them stuff. So you kind of think, but I, you know, how do I get to tell my Jewish friend about Jesus or my any friend, you know, friend of anything? Well, you keep asking them questions until they go, what do you think? And then, then, then they're actually ready to answer. But asking intelligent, thoughtful questions is a, is a real skill and is very different from step one being, right, friend, today I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Well, they're not ready to hear. They won't hear what you're trying to say. Do you see? It is a great book. Interestingly, two days ago, I was in conversation with some non-Christians and was putting into practice exactly what the book says, having just read it myself. And it, 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 yeah, it's brilliant, really brilliant. Um, I think these, the next questions are kind of probably moving a little bit more onto the specific question of Jews within salvation. Uh, and firstly, a kind of a more general question. Can you clarify how we know all Jews are not all Jews in salvation. Yes, yeah, so the key verse for this is just in chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 6. So Paul's argument back there in chapter 9, as he begins his debate on, you know, his, his sort of, I, I'm in grief here because why have my Jewish brothers and sisters not put their trust in Jesus? It is not as though God's word had failed, for not, who, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. And so when you come to the end of chapter 11, he's saying all Israel will be saved. He, he, at the very least, he must mean that subset of Israel who are Israel. Do you see what I mean? So this is just about reading the Bible in context, not, taking, not, not insisting that one verse trumps everything else, but seeing the whole. Um, you can't think, well, what, what must Paul mean when he uses the, these words? That, that verse would be a good starting point. There's a lot more you could say, but I think that, that would be a good starting point. Here's a kind of follow-on from that. Romans 11.25 states that um, about the hardening of hearts until the full number of Gentiles come in. How are we to help salvation for the Jews if they have to wait until all the full number of the Gentiles yeah. need to come in first? So I think there is, a, and I didn't really go into this in the sermon, but I think 
Um, there's a question here about the, the exact sequencing. So is this saying um, nothing's going to happen and then suddenly loads of Jewish people are going to come in? Or is it, does it go in conjunction with and in this way? And so there will be a... Because of the pattern that we've, we've had, which is people making each other jealous and then they come in too. So the, the whole point was the Jews were meant to make the nations jealous to come in to, to put their trust in God. Now it's the other way around. The Gentiles are meant to make the Jews jealous of grace and, and draw them back. And that pattern will continue and draw them in. Um, and that may be what is happening in verse 25. I think, you know, I think let, let's be honest, these are hard verses and the, you know, the Bible has got lots and lots of things which are really clear and some things which are slightly less clear. And one of the reasons that it's slightly less clear and slightly less obvious is because this is the only place that Paul speaks of this specific thing. And so where the Bible only says one thing once, that is quite difficult to kind of go with certainty, especially when it's something in the future. So we are wise to be humble and just say, it might mean this, it might mean that, let's, let's read it in the context of everything else. Um, and just recognize that that's how God's word works. What it says clearly, it says clearly. And if things are not quite so clear, that, that's part of the way God has revealed himself. And so we should be humble about that too. Um, so, it's, it, you know, it, it's, it, God is as clear as he needs to be in order to give us what we need to know. And, um, yeah, Paul only addresses this specific thing here in this letter. And that makes it slightly hard to know exactly what he might mean. But there seems to be a, a reason for hope. So let's be, let's be hopeful and trust God. You know, that's the, the message. Great. Okay, here's a nice small little question. Does 1948 Israel formation in Palestine have any biblical mandate? Are we to view nationalist Israel as good political sense or a fulfillment of Old Testament promise of God's irrevocable promise of return from exile ever since the time of Babylonian exile and Jerusalem destruction in AD 70? Has the church of the New Testament replaced Israel of the Old Testament? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to put that question in front of me so I see all the parts. And yeah, that, yeah. That's, a, that's a great question. It's an important question. It's an understandable question. And it's a question that, you know, let's be honest, Christians around the world will answer slightly differently and you will hear slightly different answers. But I'll give you what I think is the answer that makes sense with how, certainly how I've been trying to preach these chapters and how I understand the Bible. And you can tell me whether you think it's, it makes sense. Um, but I think, um, where's the question gone? Uh, Does it have political mandate, the uh, biblical mandate, the formation of Palestine in 1948? So, yeah. Does it have biblical mandate? M my answer to that, I would suggest, is the, the issue is, if that, 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 that is still an irrevocable gift, it still seems to accompany faith. So that's what I was talking about in the sermon. So it would depend on the Jewish people putting their faith in Jesus. That's the way God's plan has gone. And so it may, what I was trying to say was there, there, may, there may be a sense in which the land is promised to them when they put their trust in Jesus. Mm. Okay? 
So that is not the same as saying it is therefore, you know, a biblical fulfillment when they come back in 1948. So I would then say, as a Christian, trying to think compassionately and, and you know, w- with that kind of mindset, when, you, when, the, when, the, when the history of the Jews is such that wherever they've gone, they've been persecuted, so whichever, they're always guests in someone else's country, and they have therefore suffered persecution wherever they've gone, and, the end, and, you, know, and you end up with six million being murdered in the Holocaust, um, it, it makes absolute sense as, as the question says, politically, for there to be a state that is theirs where, where they can live. Now, obviously, there's then huge questions about, well, what about the people who already live there and, you know, all those kind of questions. And, and I suggest those are sort of, they, those are kind of political questions that you will, you know, you'll hear a range of answers on. And I would I'd probably want to say Israel has a right to defend itself, but so, you know, we, we, there needs to be a solution that gives space for those who are not Jewish to live in that land as well. And, you know, something like that. And I, pre- I appreciate that is massively complicated. And you will hear extreme things on both sides. Mm-hmm. But it's certainly in terms of talking to my Jewish neighbours, there is a sort of, you know, plenty of sort of Jewish people would, would back that as a completely sort of normal thing to say about it. You know, about Israel, that it has a right to exist, um, but that doesn't mean a right to do whatever it likes. And there's, you know, it's, it's sort of in between the two. So, um, but in terms, yeah, ter- in terms of, Bib- I mean, what, what, what we need to understand, though, I think, I think this is helpful to understand, is that there is another whole way that Christians have read the Bible, which is called dispensationalism, and has become really dominant, particularly actually in the States. And again, this is really getting into politics, but that has influenced American foreign policy, that particular view of things. And that would be a two-track view of what God is doing with Israel and the church. So not what we've been understanding from Romans 9 to 11, but something different, which is saying God's got one plan for Israel and the Jews, and he's got another plan for the Gentiles. And they're two different things. And so that would be the, the, there would be a Christian argument that would be saying, Therefore, it is right that we re-establish the Jews in their land because they, they don't need to put their trust in... Some would go as far as saying they don't need to put their trust in Jesus because, you know, Jesus isn't really for them, that kind of thing. Now, I, I, that, to me, that doesn't make any sense of the Bible story. That, that just isn't how I read the Bible. It's a very, very different way of reading it. But I think it's worth acknowledging that that view is out there and it's known as dispensationalism if you come across that. And that would lead people down that line of pushing for that. So... But what, what that kind of person would then say of the kind of thing that I'm saying now is you, oh, you, 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 you sort of what's often called the reformed Christians, you are supersessionists. So you think the church now replaces Israel. And, and they would say that's anti-Semitic and you know, all that kind of thing. And I, I think... What we've been trying to show here is, no, we, 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 if, if we are Gentiles, and many of us are Gentiles, if we, we're always the ones who've been grafted in. The root is the promises to Abraham. We get to come in and enjoy the privilege of that. So what is the church today? It is Jew and Gentile. There is no replacement theology going on. The, the, it, the whole point is there was a plan that from the start was that all nations would be blessed, 
Let's not forget that, Genesis 12. That's where it was always heading, and that is the fulfillment that we now see in Christ, that Jew or Gentile put their faith in Jesus, be part of the one family that has its roots in those Jewish promises made to Abraham. So it's a nuanced way of understanding it. It's not either or, but there are certain kind of things I definitely want to avoid and say we're not saying that and we're not saying that. So I hope that's clear. Yeah. It's a very complicated question. Yeah, yeah. Given that it's uh, uh, 12.59, I've got two more questions. I think one you may have answered already in the ser- at some point in the sermon series, which is given that, um, given that the Roman churches were mainly Gentile believers, uh, smallish number, smaller number of Jewish believers, what was pain, Paul's main purpose in writing to them? Yeah. Is it worth just point, yeah. signposting to so a particular I think, sermon? I mean, I think, yeah, that's right. And I, if, ideally, I would bring this out more. It's really important to keep the overall message but he's he's writing to the to the christians the the predominantly gentile christian church in rome ultimately to raise money for a mission to spain and in order to do that he's trying to encourage them um, to be concerned for both jew and gentile um, and uh, to uh, be united in order to then be outward looking in their mission and there's a danger that they're going to fall out with one another in Rome. And lack of unity always means you become inward-looking, not outward-looking. And so we'll come on in, the, in, the, in chapters 12 to 16. There's quite a lot about unity between Jew and Gentile and different ways of understanding things in order to keep that mission in mind. So the, the mission is the focus. Um, and unity between Jew and Gentile is vital for that mission to happen. Yeah. Um, there's... I think you've, there are a couple of more questions that we, we are not going to be able to answer. One of them is about sharing faith with the Muslims. Yes, absolutely, we could do that. We do that as, as well. Um, one of them is about uh, backwards. Why does God's plan feel like it's back and forth for Israel, Israelites? Well, I, I think probably maybe that's kind of already covered in your sermon, because or more or less. So the one I want yeah. to just finish with given that it's now 1301, where are we in God's plan? It seems with Israel not accepting Jesus and the gospel hasn't spread to all the Gentiles, it's still a long way. Very brief so, answer, where, where are, are we, we in God's, God's plan? plan? I mean, I think, you know, in one sense, that's God's business. Jesus says, no one knows the day of, of, of my return, only the Father knows. So, um, again, the, there's a, again, there, and it's, this would, again, go with that dispensationalist view which spends a lot of energy into let's get the timeline right, let's find out where, you know, let's match world events at the moment to exactly where we are in the plan. And look, here are the, you know, the, these, the tanks in that country over there, that's Revelation chapter 9 and, you know, all this sort of stuff. Um, that, that, I think the Bible says don't do that. The Bible says, where are we in God's plan? Well, we're getting on with the job we've been given. Go and make disciples of all nations. That's where we are in God's plan. So, get on with telling others about Jesus and just do the, you know, we're, we're just one small, small, tiny bit in North London doing our, you know, contribution to the plan for the years that God gives us while we're alive on this earth. Let's get on with serving him and let's leave the details of exactly how and when to him and his wisdom. Yeah, okay. I think we'll probably uh, finish there. I think just to say, if you've still got a burning question, speak to Tom at some point, whether now or, or later, that, that, that's probably great. But thank you very much for, for staying and for watching the live stream. Brilliant. Thank you. Do you want to pray? To yes, I will pray to finish with. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God whose plans 
are perfect, Lord, that there, there is no plan B, there has only ever one, been one plan that you are working out and that you are working out to its completion on the day of Christ when all heaven and earth are brought together under one head that is Christ. And Father, we do pray for those who do not yet know you. Particularly today, we think of our, brother, uh, our, our Jewish friends. Father God, we pray that you would help us to share this message of life with them. And we do pray for the work of your Holy Spirit that many may come to put their faith in the Lord Jesus, their true Messiah. Please open their eyes, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.